0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3 triple R 102.7 FM. My name is Thomas Caldwell. This is a film criticism show. I am joined in the studio by Josh Nelson and Alexandra Helen-Nicholas. Good evening to you both.
1: Hi, Thomas. Good
0: evening. Tonight, as per usual, uh, we have three films for you we would like to discuss and dissect and analyse and debate 20 Years in the Making, The Wrecking Crew is a documentary about the often-uncredited studio musicians who worked in Los Angeles in the 1960s playing on literally thousands of records. I'm using the correct use of the word literally there as well. They did. (laughs) Um, Many of these records were some of the biggest hit records of the era and are still acclaimed today. We're then going to take a look at the latest film by Ridley Scott, a combination of hard science fiction and the castaway genre where Matt Damon plays an astronaut stranded on Mars and has to figure out how to stay alive to maintain life on Mars. (laughs) nice work i had lived that i'm very (laughs) i'm a bit ashamed and finally we'll be discussing the recent home entertainment release of spring another genre mashup this time let's say the romance film and the monster movie it's a film about a grieving young man vacationing in italy who falls in love with a beautiful woman with a secret that somewhat complicates things but let's start off with the wrecking crew this uh, this is this film is titled after the nickname given to the studio musicians who were based in la in the 1960s they played on most of the Key albums of the time, including albums that Phil Spector produced and some of the more experimental albums by the Beach Boys, which is we saw this, what, a couple of months ago in, in the, the biopic Love, Love and Mercy. Mercy yeah. So I think some of the, the, the people in this documentary would have been represented in that film. And they were called The Wrecking Crew because they were, they were this young generation who embraced new genres such as rock and roll and the older and more established, established musicians accused them of wrecking the music industry. Uh, but as this documentary shows us, they helped define the sound of rock and roll, not to mention surf, R&B soul, etc. Um, this film is mostly a series of mini portraits and interviews with some of the musicians, and there's loads of anecdotes, uh, including some really great revelations about how so many of them were the people who were sort of directly responsible for some of the very memorable instrumentation on so many of these classic records. Um, a lot of famous people also appear in this film to talk about the crew, including Brian Wilson, Cher, Nancy Sinatra and Glenn Campbell.
1: Dick Clark. Don't forget Dick Clark. I'm
0: sorry, I, I, I did forget Dick Show Clark. Show your
1: respect. I
0: <laughs> can't forget the
1: dick. I know. I
0: I don't make a Clark. dick joke. <laughs> this film is made by <laughs> sorry, a guy called Deddy Tedesco. His father, Tommy Tedesco, was a prominent figure in the wrecking crew. And mainly due to the, the ridiculous amounts of money denny needed to clear all the music rights it's taken him since 1995 to finally release this version of the film although an earlier version i believe did do a very small festival release in 2008 i think it's the first time Australia has seen this film though and is somewhat expanded upon from that 2008 version look to his credit denny mostly avoids over personalizing this film and his father is certainly i mean he's an interesting enough subject to get the amount of screen time that he does I think I would have preferred a little less of that personalised narration. That's one of my bugbears I often have with with documentaries, but it's so hard to begrudge him the amount that is in this film, considering you know it, this is such a labour of love about his dad. Um, likewise, I think this could be leaner, but again, it's very hard to hold it against this film. Um, it could have been really, really self indulgent, and and it's not. What it does, it does really well. It demonstrates the significance of these people and uh, it, you know, demonstrates their significance in terms of their work as a whole, as well as drawing attention to the stories of some of the key members. And I, I can't imagine it would have been easy deciding what content to include and what content to take out. There's, there's a real wealth of material here. You could make an entire film about the bass guitar player, Carol Kay. Yeah. Who we love is, her. <laughs> kind of steals the show. And, and I think to his credit, Denny recognises what an amazing subject she is and gives her a big chunk of screen time.
1: I absolutely came out of this as a, a Carol Kay fan. Um, I believe that in Love and Mercy there is a Carol... I remember watching Love and Mercy and seeing a female play, bass player. Yep. and not, I don't think I even thought was that true, did, did that happen, but I remember that that character really, really stayed with me because she's quite a remarkable-looking woman. The photos of her from even... you know Now she's remarkable-looking, but the photos of her from the 60s, she was all like blonde beehives and cat's-eye... Glasses. Oh, those glasses those are, are so great, great are yeah. I mean, she was yeah. a fox and, and so <laughs> talented and, and these wonderful discussions where they're all sort of, the guys are all sitting around with her laughing and saying, yeah, it was sort of pretty good thing that sexual harassment lawsuits want a big thing. <laughs> and she was just unflappable, her talking about, you know, juggling motherhood and this amazing talent. I mean, hearing, Thomas, you mentioned some of the interview subjects, the way that they spoke about her in particular, um, the, the sheer talent of this woman um,
2: well I mean I think Tedesco even says she was probably the best bass player on the
0: planet I mean that's, that's fairly high high, high praise mm. in there is universal love for her isn't it, yeah. in this film yeah
1: um, it's, it's interesting because it's very much a love letter to the father it is a son to the father kind of salt of the earth uh, style kind of documentary but yeah like, I, I agree I think she kind of steals the show
2: It it strikes a nice balance between the tribute and, I think, giving it enough focus to those other musicians like Kay and and particularly a lot of the the drummer as well who has some very interesting stories. It's probably worth pointing out, and this is, I guess, an anomaly for a documentary that has taken 20 years to be released. It's filmed and produced predominantly in the style of a 1990s TV, vox pop-type documentary. It feels like a 90s Documentary. I mean, most of the interviews, the bulk of the interviews, seem to have been produced in that early stages of the of the documentary. So it's you know mostly a pan and scan style, and occasionally expands to a sort of a wider screen format. It's vox pops, it's anecdotes with music that is underlaid, and then when they start to focus on the music, the music is pushed into the foreground. But I didn't mind it. The anecdotes themselves are enough to kind of keep the the momentum of the of the documentary moving.
1: When I was sorry, I interrupted you. When I was watching it, I was thinking. Uh, you know, thinking to myself, this is such a, a kind of random point of comparison, but it reminds me of Broadway Danny Rose. And I was reading up about the film afterwards, and an interview with the director, and he consciously based it. On Broadway Danny Rose of all things that idea of the I don't know if you've seen the Woody Allen film Broadway Danny Rose but it's a bunch of agents sitting around at a coffee shop sitting around a table telling stories about the old days and that's what structures the film and it just has that same uh, energy and that, that same yeah, yeah, I see that same buzz I got a real kick out of that that was his that was like a really conscious frame of reference for him
2: Actually yeah that those scenes it almost feels like a poker game the dark and really does, the, the light yeah. I mean, it felt like something out of Sopranos and also that Ligon Street documentary we got a couple of years ago. Is it Cipala Taliano? I think? Yeah, I, was...
0: I never saw. <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> it uses oh, yes. that as a similar yes. thing. All these old Italian men talking about these great sort of stories from the early days of the Italian Ligon Street past. Um, but in terms of the, this being a tribute and, and it being directed and the interviewer being the son of one of the band members. There's a kind of catch-22 because I I doubt whether the material that he's able to glean from a lot of these musicians, he would have been able to, if it hadn't been that sort of strong connection. If they, if he hadn't grown up with these musicians, if he hadn't been present for it, if if the musicians weren't as sort of um, giving in terms of wanting to pass on these these the joy and these sort of stories that they had an emotional connection to. So I think in some ways that actually helps the documentary more than it hinders it because you get that sense of of warmth, that sense of the tribute, and also this is part of our shared history, not just you know I'm telling this interviewer who I have no real emotional connection to my stories.
1: I love that connection that you made to the Sopranos because that ties it. Really well to that sense of family you know we're all in this together and we all know each other I think one of the interview subjects at one point actually refers to them as studio hitmen yeah. that they were sent in to do to do jobs like they use that kind of language quite explicitly I didn't think that I would I mean, I certainly didn't go into this being anti it but I didn't think that I, was, I would be as engaged with it as I was and I think it's really worth emphasizing how gobsmacking it is the the range of music that these people were involved in. You listen to them now, knowing that they were the musicians on such a vast range of stuff. I mean, there's Elvis, the two Sinatras, Dean Martin, Mamas and Papas. They did they did were the musicians for Pet Sounds, um, the amazing and Pet the Sounds. TV. Phil Spector, Sam Cooke. Yeah. my favorite. Herb Albert's Little Spanish Flea. Yes. Like, I had a little meltdown (laughs) at that moment.
0: Speaking of meltdowns... That's the the song I want played at my funeral, by the way. (laughs)
1: That's on air now.
2: The Herb Albert section when they bring up the cover, which I can't remember seeing before... Tijuana Brass. ...whipped cream and other delights, is perhaps (laughs) now my
0: favourite album cover (laughs) of all time. They also did a stack of... They also played on lots of TV and film (gasps) things. The MASH theme. Batman, uh, the 60s Batman, the Pink Panther, Mission Impossible, I think our... Oh, Carol uh, K our hero, Carol Yeah,
1: there. It's, yeah. All, it's all Carol Kane. That base
0: is everywhere. Uh, look, their family connection, it's nice as well in the sense that um, it allowed them to have a discussion about how much of their lives they sacrificed this work, and it did have a serious disruption on family. That was a really good discussion as well. I mean, I think the film starts off very, very loose, but then it starts to hone in on some very interesting themes, and that's one of them. And the other one I really liked was the discussion about the fact that they didn't get credited, that that they wanted to create the illusion that all the band members were playing on these records, even though the studio musicians were better players most of the time and that even today some of them were very much like this is just a job we don't mind where some of them are quite resentful i love the quote from earl palmer who says it's not beneath you if it's supporting you which i think is actually a nice little life lesson to to artists in general who sometimes question why they have to do certain jobs just for money
1: i really like the, the ethics section and yeah. it, it, it did evolve quite organically but there was a really brilliant interview with Mickey, uh, Mickey Donuts from The Monkees yep. who was talking very explicitly, I think a couple of the interview subjects talk about Milli Vanilli
0: Yeah, that are the 90s had... reference point yeah. That's where you <laughs> yeah. can tell they, they started the interviews in the 90s <laughs> <Nazis. laughs>
1: But I thought um, the, the monkey stuff was really fascinating for me to, to talk about that kind of ethics that, you know, this was you know, that one of the guys in the bands actually honestly thought, you know, he turned up to the studio with instruments and sort of had to be politely told by the studio actually, we don't really want you to play we have these guys. The album's already who, done. Who are just, just better at the job. Yeah,
2: And it was nice that he said, I realised then I wasn't a musician, I was a performer. And I thought that was an interesting yeah. distinction to make and the way it moves from that section towards this idea of the end of the era and that the late 70s and 80s, it bit became the next wave of musicians who were musicians as well as just not just the star performers for the, for the covers
0: of these albums? That's where it ended, the singer-songwriter revolution, which made studio musicians no longer needed. Um, and what, The Troubadours was the really good film about that folk singer-songwriter yeah. scene.
2: And you would have been happy. You got your um, James Taylor with the very long hair and the dude-bro mustache image with with Carol King. I thought of you straight away because of your James Taylor crush. I forgot about my
0: James Taylor crush. I got, that's I got, starting up all over <laughs> again now. Here, Speaking that's, of crushes, I a, got Captain and Tennille. I'm happy.
1: There was a Captain and Tennille moment oh, for me, too. so my crush was <laughs> sated. I was fine.
0: If you're a music fan, and it's chances kind of are if you listen to this radio station, you don't mind a bit of the old music. <laughs> you're going to love this film, especially if you're into 60s. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the whole Phil Spector sound, and I love that. That oh, Wall of The Wall of Sound, and I was really tempted to play a wall of sound song (laughs) to go out with, but instead I thought, considering how much we all fell in love with Carol Kay, we needed to play a song that she does bass on. And this is Good Vibrations. That amazing bass line is Carol Kay. Three, triple, ah. You're listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas, Josh, and Alexandra. Uh, A bit later in the show, we're going to look at the home entertainment release of Spring. But right now, over to Josh for The Martian.
2: Yes, so The Martian revolves around an astronaut, uh, Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon, is abandoned on the surface of Mars by his crew, presumed to have been uh, killed. The film then focuses on Watney's attempts to survive on the Red Planet, and then slightly later, and this is not a spoiler, NASA's attempts to bring him home. As a viewer, this probably should have been a home run for me. Um, I tend to go weak at the knees for even the the worst of space films. I'm also a massive fan of Matt Damon, which I'm sure long-time listeners of Plato's <laughs> Cave should know, who somehow in the past month has gone from the poster
0: child for the political left to a <laughs> being branded a racist homophobe. Don't tell me he was misquoted out of context and everyone jumped on the bandwagon.
2: Seriously, internet, you're drunk, go home. <laughs> um, the film was scripted by Drew Goddard, who co-wrote and directed Cabin in the Woods, and is the showrunner on the recent Marvel TV series Daredevil, which I thought was excellent, and it was directed by Ridley Scott, who, putting aside some of his more recent efforts, his first three features, The Duelists, Alien and Blade Runner, are arguably the three most impressive career-opening films for any director. And in saying all that, I'm struggling to find too many positives about this film, and I... Oh, no. My heart is breaking (laughs) here in this. (laughs) No. Um, Oh, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I'll point out a couple of the issues where I thought this film fell down for me and then you can tell me I'm being a sanctimonious arse and you can tell me to get out. I think the biggest issue for me in terms of The Martian is the film feels like it has no dramatic stakes. and I, I've been trying to work out what it is that the film seemed to lack a sense of tension and drama for me. And I think part of it is the way in which Scott and Goddard have approached the character of, and even the science of the film, but particularly the character of Mark Watney, is to play his response to being abandoned on Mars in a really clinical and comical fashion. That is, he's abandoned and straight away, without even really coming to terms with the, the situation he's in, he just gets to work on, quote-unquote, sciencing the shit out of Mars in order to survive. So I, I never really, from the beginning, got a sense of the scale of the tragedy of him being abandoned And how, I guess, the potential threat of what he's encountered or even the sense of isolation of being abandoned on Mars because he just gets to work straight away, which makes sense on a kind of rational level. And, you know, if if you've read anything by Commander Chris Hadfield, an astronaut who was out here recently, that's exactly how he says astronauts just respond to issues in space. So, But for me, the film lacks a dramatic stake because I felt like from the very beginning I know exactly how this is going to pan out and it, it seemed to follow that. I think part of that is also the, the, the use of comedy here. I think this is almost a space comedy and the, the comic tone didn't work for me because I, I think the comedy wasn't aimed as a release valve from the drama in the sense of this is a a survival mechanism, but for me, the comedy was at the forefront. To almost a point where I'm now questioning whether this is more like a family film or a kids kids film. This is not really about space drama at all. So maybe I'm being a bit unfair. With that, But but for me the comedy didn't work and particularly the comedy in terms of the scientists I felt like, a bit like Pacific Rim actually the scientists in this film are played like buffoons, particularly the Donald Glover character in the way that they were in, in Pacific Rim and scientists who don't seem to understand science the number of scenes where scientists had to then re-explain science to other astronauts where they would respond can you repeat that in English? And that kind of frustrated me because on the one hand the film is trying to be quite scientific in, in the way it approaches this issue, but also perhaps anti-science and the other issue and this is probably a smaller issue this is not a sort of a fundamental um factor but it it, it, it's hard not to be a little cynical is the role of china in this film there's a there's a narrative detour which i think only belongs in this film in order as a sort of a cynical ploy for chinese audiences and marketing and i found it deeply patronizing so by the end of the film i felt like i'd been sitting there for two and a half hours and I felt like I hadn't been moved at all. And, and this is a film that really should have moved me. There's one moment, actually, that's not quite fair. There's, there's one moment of drama at the end or towards the end of the film where get a, a slightly tearful Damon. And I thought, OK, this is it. You've, got, you've finally got an emotional hook here. But the thing that was the the basis for that has been unexplored. And I thought there was so much more potential to mine in terms of the drama of a man being left... Behind on Mars and his attempts to survive and deal with that isolation over such a long period of time that for me, it kind of, it kind of left me a bit numb.
0: Oh, you're nodding furiously in agreement, Alex. So, do you want to go and i will try to defend well, I no, think it's one no, of the no, best no. studio I... films of the year?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm in between, actually. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a <laughs> hater. Um, there's
0: definitely. I'm not definitely... trying to be a hater. I, no, no, <laughs> I, I've got rebuttal points. i okay. um, will well, rebuttal.
1: You, rebuttal you, go, you go next because
0: I'm somewhere in between. All right. Uh, well, I mean, j- just broadly, I, I love this. I love this, um, and it, it is sort of on paper exactly the kind of film I would love. It reminded me of the really hard science fiction writing that Arthur C. Clarke used to do, and I wish more of his novels had been adapted because he's he, like the guy who wrote this this novel, incorporates real actual science, and I'm currently ploughing my way through the novel. It's you know it is full of mathematical formulas and scientific explanations, and um, it's quite a faithful adaptation. It's just sort of being condensed. They have rushed over a few things. Um, if, if you literally translated some of this novel to screen, it would have been really dull. Um, but that, that, I, I found they. I mean, and I saw the film first before I started reading the novel I thought it cut to the chase very effectively and I, I was absolutely fascinated with with the kind of procedural aspect the, the problem solving um, I felt the tension I, I enjoyed it I, um, I hear what he's saying about him snapping straight into action but I, I just totally bought that as he's a, a, a professional who would have been put through years of training so he would automatically do that i didn't mind the comedy i sort of accepted the fact he was a bit of a a likable bro and i think they had to make him like that to to make spending so much time alone with him bearable he had to be a bit playful and jokey and you know the talking to himself was entertaining i yeah i i, I liked all that and and what and I found that the scientists back on Earth in this film very different to the Pacific Rim scientists, which I had big problems with that film like you did on that. I found that, that kind of jokiness with the, with the Earth scientists very much a way of uh, humanising them and making them... It was showing us that scientists aren't all of boffins talking seriously and scratching goatees, that they're kind of regular people. And I like that everyday ordinariness of them because I think science is under attack culturally so much and politically so much. I like the everydayness, that you can be... A lovable blokey guy or gal, and still be a, a, you know, a scientific genius. There's a little bit of. Clunkiness with them having to repeat the scientific information to each other for exposition. You, 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 you're right. that That is in there. But I think I gave the film the benefit of the doubt and just assumed it's because they all have very specific areas of interest uh, or scientific knowledge. So they had to kind of explain things to each other. And, again, I like the way the film presented you're not just a scientist who knows everything, you have particular areas of expertise... Um, and the China thing, I thought was, um, I didn't find it patronising. I thought it was kind of a, a sort of a, a cute touchy-feely way of saying this might be a way we can all work together in the future. And again, it's there, it's there, it's there in the novel, and it reminded me of the novel of 2010 because they do the same thing in that. Um, no, it's the Russians. Sorry, it's, it's the Russians in 2010 they team up with to beat the Chinese. Um, I thought that was... Oh, yeah, I thought that better was a, get
1: that one right, Thomas. In we'll the novel,
0: in, in, in the novel, the film's a bit more simplified. So, Look, I, I didn't have a, any, any issue with any of that. Um, so I think we just had a, a very different experience watching this film. I, I love the celebration of science in this film, and I've been really fascinated reading up about it, finding that most of it holds up. There, there's a few liberties taken, but i'm fine with it being science fiction but yeah. the procedural stuff apparently really holds up i was so engaged with this film um and i just found it really uplifting and a real celebration of of both signs but the the human spirit similar uh, to what i got out of gravity i mean gravity i think is a far more accomplished film as just this, it's astonishing spectacle and just pure adrenaline and emotion and awe um but as a sort of more narrative driven film yeah i really dug this one i'm
1: well, I went into this knowing that you both had quite strong feelings about this movie, and I was sort of, oh, I don't want to take sides. Oh, it's how did get... you know that? Did, you, um, I, did
2: I speak? About, did I say something? I, I
1: got I think the you vibe. mentioned on
2: last week's show. In oh, I did too, yeah. Wig.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, So I, I sort of went in, not really knowing what to expect. And I, I don't know the book, and I consciously made a point to not read up on anything before I went in. The only thing I'd really heard was online people talking about it as Cast in Space, the reference to the Tom Hanks film, which, in a fair, even that. Was too much. I mean, that kind of put me on the wrong track. I don't think that the emotional core of this film really has anything to do with isolation like the Tom Hanks film does at all. Um, it's much more an, a rescue oriented action film, I think, than science fiction per se. Maybe it's an, another hybrid, like you said. Um, the prose, again, I haven't read the book, but everybody that I've spoken to who has, even just watching the film cold, you get the sense that this comes from from some really solid source material. I mean, there's no doubt about that watching the film. Um, but there's some really solid foundations here that are, that are backing this project up. A, a bugbear of mine when you watch a big blockbuster film is not knowing where the money went. Like, how did they spend that much money? And I didn't get that watching this film. You could see... I just thought it looked great i love the production design um even things like oh they've got abby and bowie on the soundtrack that must have cost them a bit you know the the cash register was going off i can see where the money (laughs) went and i'm happy and some of the um Peripheral cast, I thought there were some really amazing performances in here. Dan, uh, Donald Glover had a small role. I would have loved a whole film about his character. I thought he was fantastic. Sean Bean, Sean Bean, Sean Bourne, how are we <laughs> going to pronounce his name? I thought he was great, but I'm kind of biased. I always think he was great. Mackenzie Davis, I thought was great. Kristen Wigg we talked about. Uh, Chuatel Egiofor. Mm, well, did that, I say well, that right? Yeah, pretty
2: close.
1: I could just watch two and a half hours of that guy boiling water. I mean he just he just holds a scream like he just he 's just incredible, and there is probably no sum of money that i wouldn 't pay to have had this film, but with Jessica Chastain and Matt Damon swapping roles because neither of them were specifically um, gender specific roles. I think that I, mean, I thought she was great, but I would have loved to have seen her in the Matt Damon. that would have been like my my perfect film <laughs> um, on the flip side to all this though. Like you said, Josh, it kind of just wasn't enough space for me. I wanted—I like my space films to have lots of space in it, and I, maybe that's just a personal taste thing. But it's called I just
0: Martian, not the space above the Martian. But space
1: Mars is in space, and most of this film, most There's of a lot the action of space on Mars. <laughs> most of the action happens on Earth. Um, yeah,
2: particularly also, about two thirds
1: of the way through, yeah, they really I shift really, the focus. It's like I want to go back to the to mm. the space. This is what, this is what the title told me. I want to go see what's happening with the space guy. To be honest, I I. The one thing I didn't expect from this film that kind of happened is I was actually a little bit bored. I did find there's been talk about the dialogue being a bit wobbly in places, but I just found it wasn't just the wobbliness of it. There was so much of it. They just... I just reached a point where I just wanted people to stop talking. It just there was zero room for any kind of introspection or, or kind of quiet reflection. And I'm just amazed at somebody of, of Ridley, Squat's experience, Ridley, Squat. Scott. <laughs> Ridley Scott's experience. Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott's experience. I mean, he relies so heavily on dialogue and explicit verbal exposition all the way through. Just non-stop chatter in this film. There were very few moments where he let anything else tell the story. And that moment that you mentioned at the end, Josh, and I don't think it's a spoiler, but where he strips away the dialogue and we start seeing people communicate through through gesture, but also the the film starts telling the story through sound and music and colour. This is what Ridley Scott does best. And they were the moments that I wanted more of. It honestly felt to me that it might have been, I mean, maybe just being such a big budget film, there were just so many people with their fingers in this pie um, and it being an uh, adaptation. So... Like I said, there were real flashes in here of something great um, and I think it has a lot going for it. Um, I didn't expect to find it dull and I think I did. I think it just kind of over-talked the enigma for me a little bit. The fantasy just got a little bit too much chatter.
2: I didn't want to give the impression that I have a problem with science when when I'm talking about the clinical approach that they've... Just in case they were listening. No, no, Tom,
0: no, they're pointing at you. I don't think that was coming across,
2: no. um, But I think it was more trying to balance that approach to character with a sense that... I actually feel in danger for him or if we're identifying with him, I feel isolated, I feel alone, like we've been abandoned. I want the the opening of ET. I feel like I'm ET, I've been abandoned on a planet and I feel helpless. And I think because he leaps into that mode, there weren't those spaces to start to go, what is the emotional and psychological effect on someone who's been abandoned for such a long time, which almost frustrated me when almost magically overnight. We get that sense in, in... one shot or a couple of moments towards the very end of the film, and I was like, that, w- that, was, your mo- that was your character arc, the-, the physical transformation and emotional transformation, which seemed sort of shoehorned into the narrative at the very end. And I think part of that is because the narrative really does shift away from Matt Damon to what's going back onto Earth for such a prolonged period of time. And that disconnected me from the film. I think when the film started to move towards, OK, let's, you know, he's a scientist, he's capable... But even a you know a genius botanist can't survive for that long without it, it, taking a toll in some regard, and I felt like it, there was a bit of a missed opportunity. So I think you know there was a kind of help. Like I, I am completely open to the fact that it got me. Matt, Matt Damon and Matt's tears, they, they got me back in for a moment, but it was all sort of too little, too late, I think.
0: Uh, see, I, I felt all that stuff at the end was what we built up to. That was the payoff. And I, I, I just enjoyed being in each moment of how we're we going to fix this problem, whether it was on Mars or on Earth. I just enjoyed the problem solving, just the, the fact that what was given prominence in this film were the brains, were the people thinking through the issues. Um, and, you know, I, I guess there was sort of an absence of, of, of emotion, but I think I just enjoyed it. It's such a contrast every Everything else, we, we tend to see. So, yeah, look, I, I enjoyed that kind of thinking through the, the the issues and then you get the bigger emotional payoff at the end. So the, the it people worked in, for me.
1: The people in the cinema when I saw it were having the time of their lives. So you're you're absolutely not in a minority in terms of know, <laughs> local cinema going I'm, crowds. I
2: I'm the... The Martian, um, I'm by myself on Mars, everyone else is like <laughs> sanctimonious. I ask, you need get a alive. Wilson.
1: Yeah. We all need a Wilson. Maybe that's what. Maybe that was my problem is that I went in with, with Castaway in space and I was looking for Wilson. Where's the ball with the face paint? Yeah. the on film,
0: it? I think it's better comparable to is probably um, all is lost because, uh, I mean, that is also... I mean, there's way more psychological insight in all is lost, but all is lost is very much a man trying to fix the yacht, the boat. Like, it, it is more problem happens, I need it, I need to fix it. Um, but that's a really interesting contrast because I think it delivers more of what you're talking about you would have liked to have seen. Mm-hmm. Less talk, more introspection. You know the film it reminded me of? Armageddon.
2: Because it, it cuts between what's going on on the asteroid and NASA's attempts to rescue it, and it builds up to it. You've got the same multi-pronged cast, you've got the the machismo versus the scientists. I rewatched Armageddon today. I have to say it's hands down Michael Bay's best film, and I enjoyed it a lot more Than *The Martian*. I think it's actually doing very similar things. It's trying to balance a sense of humour with action set pieces with a kind of a problem-solving type narrative. But for me, it hits. I can't believe I'm confessing this. Maybe it's time I give up. It hits (laughs) hits emotional beats. It's It's over the top. (laughs) And I actually found. The, the construction drilling crew in Armageddon more convincing as astronauts than the crew we get in the Martian. And I can't believe
0: I've just said that, but that's, that's how I felt. <laughs> I'm Team Martian, Josh is Team Armageddon.
1: I'm Team Wilson.
0: Three Triple R. final film to look at tonight it's uh, had a bit of a festival play and it's now on home entertainment the film is spring alex i believe you somewhat like this film
1: i'm a fan i'm a fan this is directed by uh it's co-directed two guys called justin benson and aaron moorhead now this is easily one of my favorite horror films of recent years and it's just such a joy to be able to talk about it on the show a little bit now Justin and Aaron's films, I, I discovered these guys through their 2012 debut, called uh, a horror film called Resolution, and I, was, I found it literally about 12 hours before I submitted the final manuscript for my book on found footage horror. Um, and I, I kind of scrambled to get, like, a sentence in the book on it, but I really, if I had more time, I probably would have done an entire chapter on it. It just blew me away. It's the first film I saw that I thought I could confidently describe as a, a post-found footage horror film. So these guys kind of had me hooked. And then I heard that they were doing an Italian horror film and it's like, okay, this is kind of made for me. So I'd sort of been following this film through the through the production. Uh, just as Resolution, I guess, could be called in some ways a kind of horror bromance, it's Probably quite appropriate that that spring in a way is a horror romance um, between a young Californian guy called Evan, played by Lou Taylor Pucci, who goes to Italy after some dramas and meets Louise, uh, played by a German actor called Nadia Hilker. Now it's love at first sight for Evan at least, but she's uh, hugely sexually assertive and he he doesn't he doesn't really know how to deal with this and he actually mistakes her for a sex worker. <laughs> After this, they develop a relationship um, and he soon realises that his commitment to the idea of falling in love with her is challenged by the reality that she's kind of not really like the rest of us. Um, Hence, the horror comes in. Now, fans of this film include people like Richard Linklater who raved about this movie and it's become pretty much critical shorthand that this film, um, at the many, many horror film festivals that it's played internationally in the last two years where it's been a massive, massive hit... The critical shorthand for this film is that it's uh, Linklater's Before Sunrise meets H.P. Lovecraft, and I I don't think you can really fault that. But at the same time, I think it's its own beast. I think it takes aspects from them and kind of weaves its own sort of special thing. Horror romances aren't hugely common, so it's already treading kind of interesting ground. Now, the tagline for Spring is Love is a Monster, but for me it could also just as reasonably be called Reasonably be Learning to Love the Monstrous Feminine. Um, oh, that's good. We see Louise for the first time at the same moment that we that Evan does and it's all sort of slow motion, woman as object stuff. Um, almost a cliche, it's one of the few moments of the films that I think almost consciously gets to that point. She's even wearing like a red strapless dress. She's like the classic vamp. Um, but what this film teaches us, I think, in a really gentle, smart way is that women in horror can be lovable, that we, we fall in love with her in the, at the same time that he does um, and it's all about finding a way of understanding her and loving her with her monstrosity, uh, which is very unusual for horror. It's a really interesting way to deal with gender and monstrosity. I just love her character. I think she's a really accessible female protagonist. Um, I, I think they both are quite sympathetic quite interesting characters she's presented very much at first I think as the beautiful woman as object, um, very much marked by that classic to be looked atness. and you can see the shift in that as her wardrobe changes through the film, she starts dressing in a really different way so it's obviously very conscious that they've done this with her she really consciously moves from object to subject and I think that's what the film is about Um, it's about him and us getting our head around that kind of character type and being okay with it and I think that's the strength of this film Um, so Benson and Moorhead both co-directed this but Justin Benson also did, he wrote the script and I have to say I just, one of the strongest points of this film for me is the dialogue I just think it's just this really engaging intelligent, warm really just crackling dialogue Um, Aaron Moorhead was also the cinematographer and I think just the, how good this film looks is worth putting it to the top of your of your horror go-to list if you want something for Halloween. I don't know whether it was conscious, but they use light in a really, really similar way to Lucio Fulci, the Italian horror god. Um, a, a huge amount of this film is shot in daylight, which is quite unusual for horror, and the locations are beautiful. I mean, the cinematography is beautiful. Um, there's a really cynical cliche, I guess, that is, you know, love is just a biochemical reaction you know, it's not a conscious thing. You know, we just have chemicals and, and a kind of desire to procreate. And I love that Spring takes that as the starting point of a really, really smart love story and kind of unpacks that cynical observation and goes from there. I think it just balances being a really good horror film with a really good love story. Um, this is as close as I get to a chick flick. I You know, it's big things. It's, you know, biology, destiny, ageing, loneliness. The ending I really like and the kind of harder horror people I know... Really like the ending, but people I know who are not so into horror and aren 't really familiar with these guys' other work have been not so keen on this ending, so the ending is a bit open
0: look I think my problem with the ending is it felt like it became a different film for the past twenty minutes it felt it like, the
1: same thing yeah. and,
0: and, and, and the, other, when the other thing that occurred to me is. It's 90 minutes of Act 1 material and then Act 2 and 3 are crammed into the final 20 minutes. Like the the, the film does suddenly go, that final 20 minutes, it's suddenly like, and here's the major crisis point and we're going to deal with all the issues in the end. Um, although, I mean, the other way you can think of it is it's just a very slow build-up to the big revelation at the ending, but just all that stuff feels so so rushed compared to the 90 minutes before that, which is so beautiful and measured and tender and romantic and interesting. And, you're right, you know, the lighting in this film is astonishing. The acting is really, really strong. The hints of what is going on with her is really delicious, and I liked the ambiguity and not knowing exactly what her, her deal was. If I hadn't seen A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, I think I would have loved this film a lot more, but I think that kind of beat it to the post in doing a lot of these things a little bit a little bit better in terms of falling in love with the monstrous feminine. And I couldn't shake the the, 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 the kind of feeling that the film resolves by saying in order for them to be together she has to fundamentally change to suit him. Yeah, my reaction to the
2: ending was interesting, but I was completely on board with this film for quite a period. In fact, it actually reminded me in some strange ways of a film I loved a couple of years ago, Shane Carruth's Upstream Colour. There's a a sensibility, there's an an enigmatic type tone. There's also strange close-ups on worms. And the the sort of the worms with the, the theme of love and monstrosity is straight out of kind of upstream colour. I'm not saying it's a deliberate thing, but it reminded me of it. And that fusion of his sensibility in the early half with that American abroad or tourist abroad horror trope. You know, American Werewolf in London in Paris. Mm-hmm, um, definitely. Afflicted another found footage film that came out a couple of years ago um, and then it becomes more like Before Sunrise. But where I think I started to lessen my connection with the film I guess was it when it's, it becomes less enigmatic in terms of what she is, how she is, what their relationship is and things become more and more spelled out and the more it tried to spell out not the science, but you know, the, the history of, of their individual characters, the less it lost the enigma for me and the shine kind of came off. And I was like, it's almost explaining too much. And then it becomes more and more convoluted. The more you explain, the more you have to then explain for the reasons for the explanation. Yeah, just
0: to add that, it, it's, it's a crazy amount of detail that's in at the end. I thought, why do we even need that amount of detail? Like, couldn't she have been... Couldn't there be a more simple explanation so we can get on to... Or no explanation yeah yeah, for, for
1: me personally that's precisely the point is that it's it's demythologizing the monstrous woman like that's what it is like that's what the film does is that it's we're so used to seeing women are either these kind of whimpering victims or they're the kind of demonic monstrous bitches um or we have the kind of classic final girl figure that that you know, and Is there something, like, is there another? Is there a way that we can just kind of fall in love with this? You know, does is, if the final girl is the best that we can do, does she have to be a sexless tomboy? And I think it follows, which is a film that I feel less strongly about as, as we've discussed, but I think that that's in a way dealing with similar things about the sexuality of, of women in horror. Like, you know, is, is the final girl the best that we can do? And I think that these films are trying to unpack that for better or for worse, and I think that that's an interesting direction just for the genre more generally. But for me, I mean, and another film I think that's worth mentioning is um, that for me, I very much came into this with, which is one of my all-time favourite films, is Andre zolowski 's Possession. So the pacing of that, I think in a way maybe I was ready for it. I'm used to octopus- you know, it's a tentacle films <laughs> that kind of arc up. It, it um, was... mm. So maybe that's just because of my own background. But I, I very much feel that the whole point of the film was about demythologising her.
0: Yeah, but it, it just happened so incredibly rapidly. It felt like an afterthought. It felt like we had to quickly run back to Italy and shoot a whole bunch of scenes in one day that oh, very, very... very rapidly spelt everything out and we got to the end so fast.
1: But I felt that it privileged their relationship. Like, I, I, I definitely see your point, but I come at that as a, as a mechanical like that was the point that if i mean i guess what we're talking about here in a sense is the tension and it could Between be that the they are generic. early they are early filmmakers there is this tension when you do hybrid films yeah, we are you start we're, we're getting? Is quite,
0: off. This is actually quite nitpicking what we're talking yeah. about. So I, I think we. We're, well, we're well, it is, it isn't. It isn't. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a
2: fundamental structural thing. But
0: I, I didn't feel it is it, structurally. Yeah. We, we, I'm not criticising the overall intent of the film, except for that point where I think the film's suggesting she has to change to suit of him.
1: I, I feel <laughs> again, I feel almost the opposite <laughs> about that. Um, I think that it's saying something much bigger than that. But um, I, I prefer it to a Girl Walk. I mean, I love Girl Walks Home. I absolutely adore it. But this is.
0: I think it's film saying something oh. quite
1: big, mm. and I, I think that it's a. I mean, I think it's an exquisite film, but I think that the things that are at the core of, of Spring... Are, um...
2: I think you'd, you'd, you're spot on. I think the uh, the idea that it's demythologising the monstrous feminine is spot on and the ending is kind of a- almost ambiguous because it's like, well, you haven't seen this before, now you're going to have to interpret it in a different framework. For me, it was the, the dialogue felt it was too explanatory. It felt like the, the the tempo and the relationship between them and the dynamic had shifted. And it just didn't need the dialogue. So maybe it's just nitpicking about execution or it's about the, the scripting Did for Did you me. need a
1: Wilson? Did you? I don't know. Maybe, I,
2: <laughs> maybe it could have ended 15 minutes earlier. Spoiler, like,
0: she turns into a volleyball.
2: I felt, I felt don't like, they all? I mean, I felt like we'd already reached the the point that it reaches at the very end. We'd already reached about 15 minutes earlier. And then it was just a lot of kind of not getting to know you dialogue but stuff that was already implicit and for me less is more i mean that's clearly with me and the martian it's the same thing you know I, I i feel once you've hit that beat between them you don't really need to spell it out and the power of the the power of that dynamic was kind of lessened for me by the time we got to the end even though i think the ending is a really that's a great shot it's an interesting shot and clearly we you know it's open to
0: vastly different interpretations it is i, I just want to throw that in to see how you would rebut that. <laughs> With, cheeky, with cheeky a few thing. minutes left, um, oh, I'm just—I don't know.
2: Maybe I'm being,
0: I'm, I'm being cynical about how I think you can interpret films very broadly, depending on how you emotionally feel about them. You can layer—that's a whole other discussion, actually. <laughs> wow, <laughs> Let, let's not go Pandora's down thoughts. there. Um, but this is one—this is one of your highlights of the year, isn't it? This oh, is,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is one of—I I do a lot of work on horror, and I think that this is one of the best horror films of the last three or four years.
0: I do admire it an awful lot, and I can't wait to see what they do next. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about Spring, which is available on Home Entertainment through Madman Entertainment. Tonight on Plato's Cave, we've also looked at The Wrecking Crew. That's screening exclusively at Cinema Nova through Madman Entertainment. And The Martian is on wide release through 20th Century Fox. Alex, I'll see you next week. Josh, we're going to see you in a few weeks. Yep, taking a little break. Excellent. Well, not excellent, but I'm, I'm glad you're having a break. Get out. You didn't like the Martian? Yeah. That's right. Oh, I'm, I'm too upset. You listened to Playerscape. You were listening to Playerscape. Good night. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events, and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.